Welcome to a brand new episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast. We are joined by two special guests to talk to us about web components and how their team leverages them. I'd like to welcome Ravi and Eric. It's great having you both join us. Uh, Ravi and Eric, can you give us brief introductions of who you are, what you do, and what your favorite happy hour beverage is? Uh, hi, I'm Ravi. I'm an engineering manager on the ads personalization team at Netflix. Um, we are essentially on a team that helps uh, build uh, global uh, scalable advertising uh, because Netflix has a lot of marketing interest. We uh, spend a lot of money behind it. So we leverage technology a little bit uniquely to make sure that our ads work well and they're scalable and we're able to ship a lot of ads very quickly and efficiently. Awesome. Eric, how about yourself? Yeah, my name is Eric. I'm a UI engineer on the ad tech team. My favorite beverage is Oolong tea. Yeah, and um, I help uh, work on the web components that we use in all our digital display ads. Awesome. So you are using web components quite a bit. We have great guests for this. Before we get started, let's go around the table and give introduction of today's panelists. Jem, you want to start? Jem uh, Young, Senior Software Engineer Netflix. I'm Ryan Anklum, making yet another triumphant return <laughs> to the podcast. I'm a Senior Software Engineer here at Netflix as well. And I'm Ryan Burgess. I'm a software engineering manager at Netflix. In each episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast, we like to choose a keyword that if it's mentioned at all in the podcast, we will all take a drink. What did we decide today's keyword is? Reusable. Reusable. Since web components are very reusable, this could be a messy episode. <laughs> uh, but if we say the word, we will all take a drink. All right, let's get started. Before we really dive too deep into web components, what are web components? Do you want to take this one, Eric? Are they reusable? <laughs> cheers, oh, cheers. Yeah, cheers. <laughs> I have to say to that question, definitely so. <laughs> Hence why we use web components. Um, basically, they're from my perspective, they're just basic JavaScript um, that enable us to be reused in many places using standard HTML tags. Right, because that's a big appeal too, is that you're actually just mainly using HTML at the, for the most part. Correct? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Obviously... Your team is leveraging them. Ravi, I think you had mentioned focusing on for ads and, and then that's what uh, a lot of the benefits are. But I'm really interested, like what are some of the things that kind of drove your team to using them? Yeah, uh, so to answer that, I'll first give a brief background on how ads were built uh, for Netflix before. Um, earlier, we'd worked with a lot of third-party agencies. They'll have their own proprietary ways of doing things and they'll build these ads for us. Uh, every ad is roughly a website that's branded for Netflix. If you look at it, there's a lot of commonalities across all of them, um, but they're siloed and locked within each and every agency. So one of our key motivators was how do we get this work that's being done in a bunch of different places to be done in a unified centralized way? Um, that meant we started with, okay, do we have a central repo? Do we have people like pull from that repo and share a lot of code? Uh, but that was not clean. And the modularity and reusability of web components is basically Cheers. what Cheers. drew us to it. I like that you said they're basically like a web page on themselves and that they have no way of talking to each other because I can just see the hell that you would have to deal with of trying to update something as simple as like a small text change or something across all the different places. And so that makes a lot of sense for something like web components being leveraged. Right. Mm -hmm. 
And don't forget that we're making these ads for global consumption. Right. right? So think like that one small change. Yep. How many times do we have to redo that permutation? And also localization, I'm assuming, exactly. on that side too, is that if you're making that change, it's not only going to be a change across all one language, it's multiple languages across different countries. So when you say ads, could you clarify like what sort of ads are we talking so if you go to New York Times, CNN, anywhere on the web, all of your web pages, they load dynamic display ads. They're, as I mentioned, just HTML5 bundles, which are served by DoubleClick, which is Google's proprietary ad server. There are other ad servers as well, but we use DoubleClick a whole lot because it's got the global scale that we really like. Okay. So there are ads for shows and things like yes, that. Yes, ads okay. for shows. So what kind of um, browser compatibility issues do you guys run into? Um, you know, web components aren't supported in some of the older browsers broadly. So how do you guys deal with that? Yeah, so for that, we have to load a polyfill to enable that support. Luckily, the polyfill that we use is, is very small. It, it comes in at around 5K, or 5 kilobytes, sorry. And that's basically your framework because that enables, unlocks yeah. the custom components or custom elements, and then we get that reusability across all our ads. That's pretty impressive, actually, for how small that polyfill exactly. is. Yeah. That's like really powerful. Exactly. And one of our key wishes is that all browsers would support yeah. this because it's very basic. And again, it's just JavaScript in the end. So that's how we get around that. And we do extensive testing with browser stack across the different browsers as well as devices because we need to support them. And our baseline is IE10. That's our lowest that we go. <laughs> Which is like becoming fairly low, yes, so that's, yes. that's well yeah. done. Oh, that's interesting. So do you ship the polyfill to all browsers? Are you trying to avoid something like the latest version of Chrome? Does it get the polyfill with it? Or are you able to smartly not ship that? Um, for, for the time being, we ship it consistently across all browsers, but we will get to a point where we'll selectively only load the polyfill for browsers that don't support custom elements. And since it's small enough, at 5K, we include in all, all the uh, digital ads because, mm -hmm. again, it's like an HTML page. That's one of the required scripts that we have. Okay, that makes sense. And also, you're on ads, I'm assuming you're limited to size, too. So that 5 kilobytes could be expensive. Exactly, exactly. And we've had that issue before where the file size for, as Ravi mentioned, double-click, I think the limit is something like 500 kilobytes on initial load. So we have to be well within that. Um, expand a little bit on what, what's a custom element as well. You, you said custom elements, but I don't think we actually touched on what a custom element actually is. Yeah. So custom element is um, whatever you want it to be. Uh, so it's a HTML tag that you basically come up with. If you want to bring back the blinking marquees of uh, <laughs> old HTML, you can now do that yourself. Uh, even if the browser is deprecated and don't support that, uh, you get to define a tag. And by plugging into like the lifecycle events, uh, that the web component spec defines, you're able to uh, come up with HTML tags and f figure out how they behave and what they load and what the sort of representation is going to be. Oh, interesting. Please don't bring back the blank tag. <laughs> no. that, but, uh, I love that you have the option. So what are the important parts of the web component spec? I think there's probably a little bit more to it than just custom elements. Right. We use custom elements a whole lot, so that's why I led with that. Yeah. Uh, there is the other super uh, interesting and exciting piece, which is the Shadow DOM. Um, I think a lot of frameworks have tried to do it in one way or the other, uh, but the cool thing about Shadow DOM is it's every browser supporting it natively. So you get the purest possible performance. It works very well across all browsers, and you're going to get the best in class. Uh, that's the other part which gets people excited. Uh, besides that, there's the other portion that we're starting to look into, uh, the HTML templates. That's right. 
because at the moment when we have our custom elements, we're writing to the DOM with pure JavaScript, creating creating the DOM. Um, eventually, we'd like to move to ha just having the templates define what the structure would look like, and we just have the JavaScript handle the behavior of the component. Right, and it's still taking advantage of the shadow DOM exactly. too at that point, which is very nice. So yeah. you still get that performance, but you have a little more control on what the HTML markup will come out looking that's right, like. That's right. So I'm glad that the shadow DOM got brought up because that is a big important thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure with ads, especially performance matters. Definitely, performance is definitely. very important. Was that one of the key factors of why Web Components was chosen? Yeah. Um, I think if you look at it, the first thing we looked at was uh, we didn't want to reinvent the wheel. Uh, we looked at various uh, client-side frameworks, looked at what they did. Would you load one of them and you're dead? Uh, yeah. The file weight is just too big for us to load them inside an ad. Uh, so the idea is, okay, how do we get the best of what they offer without having to go like do a bunch of plumbing ourselves, which is why Web Components were immediately a great fit for us. That makes sense too. We use React on on our side at Netflix and React is great and you've got the virtual DOM and then that's really helpful. But if you were just to ship uh, React with yours, you're already paying a pretty big cost because what is what is React gzip? 30K? Is that is it Maybe. lower than that? Ah, it doesn't matter. I can't I remember know. off yeah. the top of my head, but <laughs> that's a huge cost. And when you're talking 5K, that's a big difference. So I can see a lot of value there. The other thing with the React and the benefit of having the custom elements is that if we were to go with React and have React components for the ads, we'd expect all our third-party agencies to be familiar with React. Uh, but using web components, we free them from having to know the internals of JavaScript or whatever. So we can have designers actually build the creatives using um, Google's uh, tool. As well. So Eric actually alluded to a second benefit that we haven't discussed so far, uh, which is extensive portability of web components. Um, what we do is we package them up in this other flavor that works with Google's ad designer tool. Uh, it's called Google Web Designer, and it has native support for web components. So you can go there and import it like, hey, okay, click that plus button and say, okay, I want to import this component, and now you have it good to go. And from that point, it's just drag and drop, uh, place it on the timeline. Uh, it's kind of meant for uh, designers who are very familiar with the Flash era. Yep. Uh, it's bringing them into HTML5. Uh, once again, these are like things that uh, we face day in and day out on the ad side, uh, but not so much in like regular application development. Uh, but that's the power of it. So you can uh, import it inside Google's tool, and then they can drag and drop, do their uh, fancy animations on a timeline, and uh, they're able to reuse the best in class that we produce. That's really cool. And actually, I'll age myself, but I definitely remember doing a lot of Flash banner ads <laughs> back, back in the day. And that's how it was done. Luckily, I usually leveraged ActionScript at the time because the timeline is like, it can get hairy. And especially when you have a designer who's like, can we just tweak that just by a couple like frames? And you're like, oh, I've got to go add and remove frames, at least with code. You're like, all right, yeah, that's it's just a percentage or a number. But yeah, that, so like, now it's web components is the new the new flash. I'm gonna call it that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I did a quick look up and um, React 16.3 gzipped is 2.5k for React and the React DOM package is 32k okay. for React DOM. So I wasn't too far off. Yeah, you have to add the DOM element though at that point. So and you'd have to instantiate it and yeah. all the things that go with running a framework right. or a library. How long has the team been using web components? So we started like experimenting with a year ago, yeah. uh, but as of uh, three months ago, uh, all of Netflix's ads are essentially built with web components, every single one of them. Um, 
and we were able to get to adoption pretty quickly, mainly because of um, the Google Web Designer support that I mentioned. As you've been focused on leveraging them, I'm sure there's been a couple things that you've had to deal with. What are some disadvantages, some headaches that you've had to deal with? I think the biggest one for me in, in working with the web components was being aware of the lifecycle, because there's a few lifecycle methods. One is the created callback, the other one is the attached callback. Be aware that we're using the V0 of uh, custom elements versus the V1, which had a different naming for the lifecycle methods. Um, and basically just hooking into those and being aware of when things are created versus being added to the DOM. And that was one of the biggest things I would struggle with in terms of uh, getting things to render properly. So race conditions, basically. Yeah. Right. Like the, lots of race conditions. <laughs> Always dealing with that yeah. is a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I think we've got it stable now, knock yep. on wood. But yep. I think the reusability of the web components is really shining through. Cheers. 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 But the other thing about the web components and going back to the advantage is that not only does it work with GWD, but people that are comfortable using React and using Webpack can take these JavaScript or custom elements and package them up as they need, integrating them with their own libraries. Oh, interesting. So, so they'll work no problem with something no like problem React, whatsoever. Angular, right. Ember, whatever framework you're using, it will just basically work. That's right. They just have to package it up in their own build system, which uh, Robbie alluded to before, and it'll work. So we support dual uh, two workflows. That's really cool. So yeah. what made you go with custom elements and not use like a skateboard JS or uh, Google has their own uh, web polymer? Component. Yeah, polymer, polymer or something like that. I think polymer was a bit too heavy because it yeah. brings a lot of has a lot of other dependencies. Skate JS, I looked at that briefly, but for what we were doing, I didn't think that we needed that extra overhead. But that's definitely something we could revisit in the future, depending on the needs of of our uh, agencies. I think like with web components, like one of the key drivers, as I keep mentioning uh, back to it, is that support with Google Web Designer. If you look at it, we're building for um, our users for these uh, ad agencies. They are familiar with it. They are going to use it immediately. And you build it as a HTML5 web component. Uh, it's going to work in that, and they're able to leverage it more or less instantaneously. So that was a that was kind of what clinched the deal. In addition to all of the technical sort of benefits. That makes sense too. I think from like the scalability on that, obviously you've got the scale of how you're able to ship these out at the end of the day, but also just the ability of like thinking about all the different people that are involved in creating the ads. It's less work necessarily dealing with engineering all the time. It's like it can be moved across this board and leveraging Google's web design tooling that's already in place that they're familiar with. That's a huge benefit, I, I can imagine. Yeah, and to that point, we actually did... Um session down in Mexico City for one of our agencies. We sat in a room <laughs> for a day. Probably a laugh, but we had they split up um, into three teams of twos. And we had account managers, designers, regular engineers. And um, they each were able to create an ad before the end of the day using GWD. And That's that awesome. was really powerful. Yeah. People that had never coded were able to create ads. Okay. Always dealing with that. It brings me back to like Dreamweaver days or any of the WYSIWYG like ship to, you know, production. Are you able to take something that's created in Google Web Design and ship it? Do you feel comfortable on the engineering side to just ship it from that? So in, great question. In regards to that, we, th we ran into that issue ourselves. So we actually have tooling on our side that will take an output from uh, GWD and package it up to get ready to be served through our, we have a, a main app called Monet mm -hmm. that we serve it through there to be configured and, and modified. Yeah, I won't lie, there is a bit of uh, scaffolding and other sort of investments that we've had to make to sort of 
create this ecosystem uh, that agencies can use. Uh, without sophisticated tooling, this doesn't really work. So you have to bake all those pieces so that you can make this pipeline as efficient and bottleneck-free as possible. One thing I'm curious about, now that you guys have a lot of experience with web components, if you were building a side project from scratch, would you start it by using web components or would you pick up something like React, Ember, or something like that? Um, I think it depends on what the needs are, what the use case is. Um, I, I wouldn't say that web components are, are needed for Would it be the first everything. thing you look at? For what? Would it be the first thing you look at or would you think of... Again, depends on the con- what I'm building. <laughs> if I were building an app, I don't know that I would go with custom elements just because I'm comfortable using React, for example, for doing that kind of thing. But... So I have a controversial statement <laughs> okay. to make, uh, which is that uh, long term, everybody's going to be using it. Um, I think it's a little bit uh, um, risky to make statements like that because more often than not, people are wrong. Uh, but I feel pretty confident uh, given the way they've worked for us and given the way like the industry is pushing it forward. The way I can see Google sort of uh, pilot this technology and move it forward, I strongly believe that, okay, everybody's going to be using it in some flavor or the other in the near future, if not right now. Uh, take a look at it is what I'd say for most people. If the fit is good, get in early. It's always good to sort of learn a technology before it becomes mainstream. Even talking about it to the more modern browsers is it's more adopted. So it is, it's not something going away. It's it's actually being more adopted. And so you're right, there's probably going to be more need for it or more people using it. And so it just kind of leads to that long term. So I'll ask because we, we've actually done an episode on web components with uh, the creator of Skate.js. Yeah, with Skate.js. It's actually here on Netflix too, yeah. ironically. Weird. Which he's at Atlassian, right? Yeah. But so web components have been around for years now. They've not really caught on though. Like I don't hear much about them. Why do you think that is? Is because they're just not sexy. It's just like it's HTML and JavaScript at the end of the day. It's like nothing fancy or... I think the client-side frameworks, React, for example, um, and Angular 2, They've done a great job uh, kind of getting the best of web components baked into like their thinking. Uh, you use React components, you kind of get the same feel of web components. You're happy using them. So if you, you're you still using the idea, even if you're not using the APIs directly, right? So I'd argue that because they're kind of filling that gap, you're happy not knowing about it. Uh, but if browsers kind of step up and like get their game to that point, you might have to rethink and figure out, okay, do I need the framework to do that job? So your your use case, just so I like to summarize now and then. So the use case for the web component is you're building small, lightweight HTML pages, essentially, but they need to be reusable. Like everything in there needs to be reusable. Cheers. Cheers. Twice. <laughs> And that's the case where something like React or Angular or Ember wouldn't work because it's just too heavy. Right. But you still need that usability aspect. Um, but you still need, need it to be lightweight. And that's where the web components come in. It fills that like niche right there. That's right. exactly right. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Going to the custom part of it, even I love, Ravi, that you brought up the blink tag. Uh, <laughs> Are there concerns there too of like, I think of like accessibility. Um, and I've seen this, I've, I've bitched about it on the podcast is that like coming around the accessibility side is we often tend to in react I've seen it many times that were like a div is used as a button because it's like ah it's just javascript we can add an event handler on it and now it's a button but it's not being used as proper markup mm-hmm. do you see are there some downsides or will that happen with web components is that we're not using semantic markup i think it's a little bit out of my uh, <laughs> understanding of, i haven't actually run into or heard any issues with regards to that and 
but it would definitely be something I, I would revisit if that issue did come up and see how how are we creating, you know, for example, CTA, which is a call to action button. Yeah. Are we using semantic right. uh, DOM elements versus, yeah. like you said, a div versus a button? Yeah. And definitely revisit it and then we can change it and then everyone would get the benefit of it. Ah, uh, so that's another thing too is like at that point, if I like built it with a div and you're like, whoa, 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 this is not like mm-hmm. even accessible. Let's just make it a button. You could change that and it's going to apply everywhere that it's being used. That's right. Because um, based on that tooling that we have in- internally for all uh, the agencies, we are able to publish it via, um, we, we have an NPM uh, repo that houses all the components so they can grab the update through NPM. Or we also have another tool where they can, uh, that updates all the components for them. That's very So cool. they run this updater, and whenever we publish an updated version of components, it'll go through their internal version of components and update it for TWD. So we remove that friction of having to manually remove and update a component every time because we're running into that issue. I, I could see that, and I, especially when you're able to build something like a WYSIWYG that mm-hmm. basically allows anyone to create that, is they're not going to have all that understanding of what the implications are to leveraging some markup that's not shouldn't be used in those scenarios like the blink tag should not be probably (laughs) used but you could do it so what are those guardrails to kind of help prevent that and i think that's a pretty good way of doing that is you know there might go out into production as broken for a while but at least you can kind of pull back on that as well that's right that's right and that allows us also with the versioning that we do we can roll back if there is a production issue and roll out a quick fix like we keep a good a good watch over the components because we know all the agencies globally are using them. Yeah. Um, and this affects everyone. To give you guys a sense of where we started and where we are today, um, originally when things were broken, nobody would find out about it. Uh, things were that bad. Uh, so we started uh, making our agencies instrument the ads. And of course, we have server-side detection. It'll figure out if things are broken, tell them, hey, okay, this is broken, fix it. Uh, but that happened constantly because people would ship yep. bad code inside ads all the time, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is like basically what got us thinking in this uh, in the way, way early days. And Eric sort of alluded to a very nice point, which is versioning. Uh, earlier, if people had to fix an ad, it's not just about going in there and changing the code. Uh, it would have to be approved by marketing. They'd have to uh, do quality control, visually look at it to say that, hey, okay, this works and do it across a lot of different browsers right. and mobile devices. And it was just insane. Uh, now, for example, it's, hey, okay, update this component. We have a suite of automated tests that we're finishing up right now. It tests that, okay, it doesn't break any of these um, the ads that are going to use it, and then immediately ships it out, and everybody gets it through our updaters and NPM packages. That's awesome. I was very curious about that is what type of automated tests or testing is being done, but it sounds like you have already thought about that, and it, it probably saves a lot of headaches by just definitely. checking that. Right. Definitely, definitely. And that was something, a key thing that we had talked about, me and Ravi, many times before, is that you know, we need to have some sort of safety to know that when people are making these changes, because we have a few people that can help out, that those changes are resilient and they're not breaking things in other places. Because we do, um, they send out events and they ha- we have animation components as well. Um, we want to make sure that they're consistent. Yeah, I guess that's another thing too, is like brand consistency too, exactly. right? Exactly. Like, you know, when you have a, a large group of people making animations or assets, it's like, that brand piece is very mm-hmm. important that we don't do certain barn door animations or star swipe. That's and right. But 
hey, you build that tool and anyone could do it. So that that's very cool that there's a little bit of uh, testing in place for that. I was going to ask, what sort of, do you test components in isolation or do you test them as a whole? Like you put all the components together and then test it's, those. It's both. Uh, we test them in isolation. Uh, we just fire it up and say, here's what you're supposed to do. Here are the events that you're going to fire. Here's how you render yourself. Um, and those tests happen. Uh, you still need to stick them inside a HTML page and sort of put a little bit scaffold around it, but for the most part, it's isolated. Uh, and the complement of that is here are some uh, templatized standard ads that we know have to work each and every time. So we're able to instrument it very well and test that, okay, it actually doesn't break when you put out a new version. Do you do like visual testing or is it you're hooking to events in the lifecycle and seeing like they're, they're at the moment we hook into events because the ad when it loads it'll fire like a ad loaded kind of event um but we are looking at doing visual events as well yeah um, there's this like screenshotting wanna, them i can't remember the exact tool that uh you want to talk the, about nightwatch and Rose's yeah stack? so we're using nightwatch for end-to-end -end testing and then we'll uh, integrate the visual testing within that tool as well and it's also uh we it integrates with the browser stack, mm -hmm. um, so you make sure that the changes that you make are going to work on all of those different browsers um, and mobile devices and different browsers yes. on mobile devices. Uh, so that's the kind of cool thing by automating all of this. You're able to make sure that things bre uh, don't break in like the needle in the haystack and cause an upset for you after the ad goes live. Yeah, especially because I it's it's not only breaking product experiences. Like we we definitely have to worry about all the different browsers that we're supporting, devices, iOS, Android, and the whole gamut of different viewport sizes. All that for you, it's even. I think there's even this weirdness of every dollar spent for marketing, like to serve up an ad. That's that's costing money, and so if it's broken, well, that's not going to really help at all. You're not going to see that conversion rate. It's actually going to hurt that, and it's going to cost a lot of money. Yeah, uh, the common thing that I like to say is by the time we serve the ad, the dollar's already been spent. Yeah, yeah. The question is, are you putting it to good use or not? Uh, and there's two kinds of failures. One is the white box where nothing loads, uh, which is okay in my personal opinion. Uh, the worst thing is when the ad just looks really ugly and you really don't want that to happen because it's like trying to present your brand in the nicest possible way and trying to get somebody excited about what you've got. And you've basically ruined their day because, okay, they're looking at an ad and worse, it's not even rendering correctly and it's probably slowing their browsers down. That's true. I guess the white box, banner ad is bad but because you can't see anything yep the one that's kind of broken it might be making me curious to click on though what is this <laughs> uh, it could happen could happen actually and really help conversion i don't know uh the thing is a lot of those times uh if you click it won't take you anywhere okay so. well then that's very broken <laughs> if you can't get me to where i need to go that is a problem yes all right at least I with the white one it. you don't know that it's us so it that's be true anyone, it right? could be anyone or and if they have a white page like a lot of content sites that's are right. just a white page so it's just it's just a hole it's in sight, and it's end. nice. That's perfect. It's like some nice negative space. Exactly so, <laughs> works with the design. I, I like the work. I, I mean, I I like your team. I like the work you're doing because like it's a very Netflix culture. Because like, I think most companies would be like, we have all these agencies, we have ads we need to serve. Let's just keep throwing money at them, and like we'll hire a liaison to like help juggle this technical thing. But it's like no let's solve this problem once and for all and like let's create a team to help these people so that they empower all these other people. I think other companies would do it very differently, but Netflix is like, let's solve this problem here and now. 
Um, I like how you immediately gravitated to the aspect that it's cultural uh, because the original impetus for doing this came from the marketing side. Those guys are like, hey, we're, we've got all of these agencies. We love like what you've got with the dynamic ad technology that you've sort of built at Netflix, but we want to scale it up. And the only way to scale it up is to throw more money and we don't want to do that, right? So they came to us with this problem, with this, hey, okay, what can you guys do? What can we do collectively, right? And that's when like we figured out through a bunch of ideas and then this is the one that won out because of the merits. I love it. Like, I, I think usually historically marketing and engineering are like antagonistic. It's like marketing wants this and engineering is like, no, and marketing is like, do this. You're like, maybe, but like the collaboration I think is, is really powerful and it just, it solves the problem for everybody. So it's less work on both your ends. And I think what's happening in marketing and the kind of tooling that we're doing is unique across globally because I don't think anyone is doing the kind of things that we're doing trying to solve those problems that we're solving. And I think it's really empowering the marketing teams uh, to create and, and, and at a global scale. Because if you think we're going to launch something like 700 titles this year, think about all the creatives you would have to do for each title globally. And multiply that for all the different permutations as well. Oh, yeah. Like it's the scale, the sheer scale and volume. And I, I love that you have actually empowered exactly what Jem said. It's like we're empowering the engineering aspect to scale marketing um, and give them tools to actually be able to do a lot of things. I think that's great. Well, we're spending uh, $2 billion on marketing. It's not a secret. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, everybody's looking at me like, should you say that? It's not a secret. No, I, I know no. it's not a secret. Um, yep. Like, yeah, we're spending $2 billion on marketing on our original titles and all these other things. And I think, again, I think most companies just like throw money, like do big stunts. But it's just like, no, let's get some more engineers and like let's solve this problem so that that $2 billion goes even further than it would in other places. So here's something that I can talk about uh, nowadays. Uh, which is um, we push the ads industry forward in terms of what's called incremental bidding. Um, a lot of times, if you look at the ad platforms, they're bidding for conversions. It's, hey, I'm going to bid for Jem because he's going to convert. If he converts, I get credit. I'm going to bid for uh, Ryan Budges, and if he converts, I get credit. Problem with that is um, if Jem was going to convert anyway, uh, now the ad got credit for it when it really shouldn't yeah. have. It just influenced Ryan to convert, and that's why it was causal. Um, so that's where the concept of incremental bidding comes in, which is just go after people who wouldn't have converted except for the fact that they saw your ad. So they decided, okay, let me convert and like sign up for Netflix, right? Uh, so those are things that like overall in the ad technology team, we kind of did it. And now we're getting our ad partners to like invest more and more into it. Uh, it's really cool overall. Um, what would you guys like to see for web components in the future? I'd like to see more adoption. I'd like to see a community rally up around it. I mean, it'd be great to have something like the React community around it because I think it, it's a very viable um, technology and piece that can be reused. I have a very fundamental ask, which is make it a standard. It's not a standard yet. Uh, yeah. It's been a spec for quite a long time. I think 2014, late 2014, early 2015. Yeah. Right. So... I'd love to see it to be a standard uh, because that's when adoption will start. Yep. The longer it kind of sits on the shelf, the less likely it is that, okay, things will work out perfectly. So that's the part that I hope for the most. Yeah, and I mean, Google has been pushing it. I am I feel like for a while, but it touch and go. Like sometimes mm -hmm. I feel like they're really pushing it and then it's like quiet and then they're pushing again. So I'm hoping that the momentum keeps up. I feel like early 2014, it was really heavy, like especially with Polymer, that's like, roughly around the time Palmer was yeah, really yeah. Right. Uh, being pushed. And now I'm hearing more and more about web components. So maybe we're on the right track again. 
Right. And you touched on the other big ask that um, I do have for web components, which is universal browser support. Um, Firefox, I need to wake up, they need to adopt the standard, and they need to like... How, how is board. Edge? Like, is Edge adopted web components? Uh, no, I believe I still need to polyfill for that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So hopefully we have some people listening who work on those browsers, get that in, that would be useful. Yep. Step one is push the standard, right? Get get it yeah. as a standard, and then the browsers don't have a choice but to implement it, right? It's true, and and coming to that conclusion together to like, how do we implement this? Why why is it not a standard though? Is it like W three C just doesn't bother, or that I don't know. I mean, these things take time. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, especially if you think of how long a spec takes to go through. True. Unfortunately, it takes time, which is maybe actually a good thing sometimes. It is. I don't see the opposition to this, though, because I don't think it hurts anything. There are things that I think are harmful if they got implemented. It would harm the web in general. But I think this is pretty much like, if you don't need it, don't use it. It's not going to hurt you. Oh, now that Smooshgate is solved, maybe we can... <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure a lot of our listeners may have never actually leveraged web components. What advice would you give to someone first trying to Test it out, uh, learn it. Just try it and be aware of the lifecycle methods. I think those were the... Yeah, you did say that earlier. Yeah, those were the key takeaways for me. Once you got, once I got used to create a callback and a tides callback, everything else just fell in place. I mean, in the end, it's just r- vanilla JavaScript. I mean, yeah. If you can write JavaScript, you can write a web component. And that's what advice we always give on frameworks in general is like, if you can write JavaScript, you can learn a framework. At the end of the day, it's JavaScript. And that's the most important, getting those fundamentals. So for someone that wanted to learn web components, do you have any suggestions of where, where should someone go to get started? Think like I just used Google. I didn't really like try to <laughs> find my way in a structured fashion. It was just, hey, like, let me search for it. Look at some articles, look at people who actually used it. And I just learned, learned by examples, I guess. Maybe we need to put something on our tech blog about how we use web components. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Ravi will start writing that. Yeah. Now you guys are on record saying that. you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, at the end of each episode, we like to share pics of things that we've found interesting to share with our listeners. Let's go around the table and share pics of things that we found interesting. Ravi, you want to start it off? Yeah. Um, so I have this problem where I'm constantly presenting in meetings and uh, that's the time when my wife decides to uh, text me about picking up trash bags and other stuff. <laughs> and I really don't it's want It's embarrassing, that. right? Yeah, yeah, it totally yeah, is. Yeah. So um, I found this app called Muzzle. Um, so it works on a Mac. It automatically puts your uh, Mac on a do not disturb mode when you're presenting. Uh, it's contextually aware. And I swear I haven't had this problem happen for the last six months. So it's probably working perfectly Yeah. Uh, because I do get notifications every other time. It's just okay. It's it's so second nature to me right now that I don't even bother. It's not a concern anymore ever since I got it. And it's free. That's the best part. Oh, my God. That's awesome. I'm totally downloading it. But isn't that built into OS X by default? Like if I plug in to HDMI, it, it will hide my notifications by default. What? No, it's really? In, it's in, it's not on Google Hangouts or um, any other kind of browser-based Oh, and Hangouts. I think if yeah, you're yeah. using Keynote and things like that, it's okay. But it's like if you're full screen on Hangouts, I don't think it does. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah, I've texted many. I, I mean, the downside now is uh, I often like write something on Slack to my coworker <laughs> who's presenting. I don't remember that. Okay, he doesn't have this mute thing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't really have a pick. I, I have a suggestion, though, and mine pick is really uh, the city of Osaka in Japan. I mean, if you ever get a chance to go to Japan, I highly recommend visiting Osaka. 
One, because it's uh, considered the kitchen of Japan. So the best food, they say, is down in Osaka. The other thing is if you want to visit some other cities nearby, uh, Kyoto, Nara, and Kobe are all, are all 30 minutes in each direction. So definitely highly recommended. Ryan, what do you have for us? Um, my first pick is a song by Jack Jones called Breathe. And it's just one of those songs, if I'm having a bad day and I'm crabby and sitting in my car and it comes on, just has me jamming along, singing along, and it always puts me in a good mood. So, how many times have you listened to it? All the time. A lot. I'm always coming. <laughs> <laughs> in California, I'm always coming home in a good mood. It's always sunny. It's always nice out. Um, no. So, if you're having a bad day, stick a listen. Um, my second pick is an app called Native Fire. Native Fire. It's an NPM module, and it will wrap any website in an Electron app. Uh, so. I thought of this because I was actually going to have my pick be the new Android web messages, yeah. which I wrapped in Natifier now. So I have this native Android messages app on my computer that works just like um, iMessage used to. So uh, it's really nice for messaging apps. You can wrap, I think, the WhatsApp web app in it or any, any web page you want. Um, and it turns it into a native app wrapped in Electron. Very cool. Uh, I definitely want to check that out. Yeah, it's all command line interface. Just do Natify and then send it the URL and it'll go inspect it and it'll even try to get the icon and things like that from the website. So wow, it's pretty cool. That is yeah. cool. Jam, what do you have for us? Uh, I just want to say that not everything should be an Electron app. <coughs> Slack. Billion <laughs> 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 dollar like, company can't make a native app. Sorry. I've been on Slack rants before and the amount of resources it consumes. Anyways, uh, I have two picks, neither of them meaningful. My first pick for my Valley Silicon segment where I pick something that shouldn't exist or it only exists because we have too much money is Dyson fans. I bought one $420 later for a fan. I'm returning it. It's just a fan. I, I expected more for the money, I, for the hype that Dyson gets. It's like, it's cool. It's a fan, but it's it's not that great. It's not $400 great. A $50 fan would have done it. So you and I also talked about it. It only has the one button on it. And then there's a remote that goes along with it, which has the controls to oscillate and change the beat of the fan. So if you lose that remote, which is smaller than the Apple TV remote, it is like $40 to buy a new one. Is it really? Yeah. So they, the engineers did not have children. <laughs> yeah. Like, no. It's not a smart fan. No. So there's no like app to hook up to your phone which to me i'd be like all right well that might be a little more appealing it doesn't even remember the previous settings that if i had on oscillate on like level four and i turn it on without the remote or if when i turn it back on it does not remember the previous setting like it'll go back to the, like original like it'll stay on level four but it won't oscillate again and if i don't have the remote you are now stuck in that one mode permanently because you can't change it like ryan i don't know for for that much money i expect more polish in a product like a macbook is expensive but it's a well-made machine. I don't have any problems with it. Mm -hmm. Ryan just gave a face. Ryan A. The new ones. It's the old ones. Yeah, he's, he's been sucking on the old one. Like, yeah, old ones still. Yeah. I'm like giving it up. Two of the people here are very smart and stuck on the old one. But uh, the rest of us, not so much. So, <laughs> uh, And for my second pick after that epic rant, another rant. Uh, I'm calling it now, today, the end of IPAs. I think the IPA hype train is over. Um, for those who don't know, IPAs, Indian Pale Ale, it is... Like the most overhyped beer of all time, it, it's bitter and it's hoppy and it's terrible, but people swear by it. They're like, oh, it's triple hops. It's not good beer. And I'm calling the end of it now because I think people are now starting to learn that IPAs are not that good. Stouts. I'm, I'm a stout person yeah, all I'm a day. Stout person all day, yeah. yeah. I will take the IPA over the stout. So it's I like a lot of different pale ales, but not necessarily India pale ales. So like um, there's one beer I really like called 
I forgot what it's called, but it's uh Yeah, I like ales too. Mirror Pond, like that's the one I was thinking. Mirror okay. Pond. Oh yeah. Uh, pale ale is really good. So we got some good gem rants. Yeah, you know. Awesome. All right, and I have two picks. One is actually a music pick. One of my favorite bands. I haven't heard a new song from them for a while, but the Gaslight Anthem, they have a new song called God's Gonna Cut You Down. I really like it. Good song. And then to, I don't know, it's not an anti-pick, but I'm pretty sure Jem will consider it an anti-pick. <laughs> That's on him. Um, I got a smart lock and I've had it for uh, almost a week now and I've had no issues and I'm enjoying it is the Nest and Yale lock. It's a great smart lock. It's Wi-Fi enabled. Um, it also has a key code on the front. So if you, you don't actually need an app to um, turn it on or turn it off, it integrates really well with other Nest products. I highly recommend it, Jem. He's shaking his head at me. That's fine. We, we will save this rant for another episode, but yeah, I we- just want to point out that the lock has been around for a long time, right? Nothing wrong with it. it like the deadbolt, I think, what did I tell you? It was like 19, it was 1905, 1901 or something when it was created. It has not been innovated in a long time, Jim. It doesn't need to be. <laughs> it, it works. It's easy to pick a deadbolt. So yeah, I don't know, I don't man. think it's that easy. A good lock it, is not that easy. Just but, like we talked about before the episode, though, if you're laying in bed and you don't remember if you locked the front door, Smart lock is the sweet spot. Is that a that. real problem, though? It is. is. That a yes. real, real like problem. He has to get I've up lost. in the middle of the night to go check. <laughs> I don't worry like, about like, it. Have you seen a, me? No, just don't worry about it. Don't think someone's going to lock. Think about something else. There were two Comcast outages in my area in the last month. I'm pretty sure I'd have gotten stuck because it was like around 6-ish p.m. I would have been stuck if I had a smart lock. So this this lock does work without Wi-Fi. Okay. So it does. Okay. Yeah, you, you are safe. And power? Yeah. Without yeah. power? Uh, yeah, no, it, it's actually battery powered. It will oh. tell you when the battery starts to die. So that's good too. So um, then you start worrying about, oh, shit, is the battery dying on my smart lock? <laughs> no, because it should tell me at that point. <laughs> if it if it fails there, maybe we'll have a problem and I might be texting Jem to come help me. <laughs> but it's fine. I haven't hit that point yet. Before we end the episode, I want to thank our guests. Thank you both, Eric and Ravi, for joining us. It was a pleasure having you both on. Where can people get in touch with you? Um, I have a Twitter that I don't really use a whole lot. Uh, it's called... Uh, at DuckTyped, D-U-C-K-T-Y-P-E-D. Um, I'm a huge Python fan, if you haven't figured out uh, based on that handle. Uh, but that's that's basically me. Uh, you can reach me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at uh, SuperBokBok. That's Super, B-O-K-B-O-K. Comes from my old Quake days. Oh, that was nice. my Quake tag. And that's the tag I use now on Quake Champions. So. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you all for listening to today's episode. Make sure to subscribe to Front and Happy Hour podcast on whatever you like to listen to podcasts on. And you can follow us on Twitter at Front and HH. Any last words? Thanks for having us on. Yeah. Right thank on. You. Thank Pleasure. you for joining us. Thanks. All right. Yeah. Thank Thanks, you. Guys.